360Ed TV is brought to you by Rice Studios and Agility. Glenn, welcome to 360Ed TV. Um, got to sit in on some of your keynote today. Uh, great session. Um, your academic career and your time as the inaugural CEO of Universities Australia affords you some pretty unique perspectives uh, on the nation's uh, international trajectory in terms of education, uh, learning and research. Um, since January 2010, we've seen six education ministers for <laughs> vocational ed, skills, six ministers for education and training, uh, and we've kind of been in this situation where there's been a policy vacuum, if you like. Um, we're kind of beset by populist commentary on one hand and uh, an anti-expert rhetoric on the other. Uh, given the thoughts that are no doubt rolling around in your head, how would you characterise this term, uh, this period in broad terms? In actual practice, we've been treading water for a while, five or six years. Yeah. Uh, we went through some significant phases of uh, rethinking tertiary education, particularly after the Bradley Review, but also in the light of some uh, reviews of international uh, education that, that we had following some Indian student uh, issues uh, and the global financial crisis impacts on Particularly uh, relevant here system. in Melbourne too. Especially so yeah. in Melbourne. Uh, and. Uh, as we know, indeed, uh, international education is Victoria's number one uh, export. Uh, so what, what we've had is a period of treading water. It may be after a lot of change and, and upheaval. Uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. If the alternative is, is ill-considered policy, then of course you want to stay steady. If, on the other hand, there'd been some real leadership and vision to take us further uh, into areas, for instance, that weren't considered, there was some significant redevelopment of university uh, teaching, education, and I think that that change five or so years back, post-Bradley, was really very good. The international education has been a, a wonderful change and needs some fine-tuning, but it's been wonderful. Uh, but the research area, for instance, remains substantially unreformed uh, within universities, and then the relationship of uh, universities or higher education to vocational education and training uh, has been left absolutely untouched. Uh, it was going to be considered, it was meant to be a follow-on from uh, earlier reviews to then look at uh, how the two sectors should be linking or not with each other but and how they should at least be proceeding uh, and that's been left I think especially to the, the detriment of vocational education and training. Uh, Universities have developed ways of supporting themselves, managing themselves, such that, in a way, benign neglect, uh, as Tony Abbott promised when he first became Prime Minister for <laughs> universities. Uh, but like many promises, that, that was not quite true. <laughs> no, that's uh, good insight, yeah. But uh, the universities uh, can flourish in that circumstance as long as they're not being attacked. So. If we were to think about some of the themes that you just called out there, we, we, we talk about a less holistic view. VocEd has been really treated as its own box, if you like, higher ed separately. However, the view of the student life cycle and multiple pathways and credentialing and competency-based education, these are themes that are forcing us to look more holistically at the students and I guess in a sense the customers 
journey. Um, are there any other really important uh, choices or themes that we should be grappling with at the national level? Well, that, that one of vo the relationship between vocational and, uh, and, and tertiary education is uh, a crucial one. Uh, not least because the vocational sector is lapsing, and I'll just continue with that theme for a moment, mm. but as an economist in my case, the actual rate of return on vocational education is higher, I can say now, not being CEO of University of Australia, uh, is higher than university education. You heard it here. <laughs> and they're both very high. Mm -hmm. uh, but what you found is that the, uh, the benefit in employment that comes from vocational education is still very high. Uh, and the cost of that education is so much lower than university education. Mm -hmm. So when you put cost together with a return, vocational comes out looking very strong. Uh, university people climb a bit higher later on in their careers and get the, get the real super incomes. Uh, and some in, of course, uh, vet areas do as well, but more in university. But early on, you get a good, good employment rate, you get a good earnings, uh, and you haven't had to spend you know, four, five, six years uh, without earnings before you do it. So that, that's why that's a bit of a challenge that worries, worries me. But beyond that, it, it's still the, um, the issues of, uh, of getting research right, uh, research engagement as well, so that we're talking about the impact and uh, relationships of university research to outside activity uh, rather than just for its own sake. Uh, and it's not either or, it's what blend of those you should have. But at the moment, it's uh, very much for its own sake. Mm. And therefore, how do you uh, shift that a little so that the taxpayer can see that there's uh, a, a good return, not necessarily in dollars, but a good return uh, on uh, the money that they provide for that research. Although, oddly enough, again, putting the economist hat on, the rate of return on research is very high as well, uh, you can prove. Uh, you've just got to allow some failure for the successes. And uh, if, you, if you do that, and don't spend all your time worrying about the odd obscure project which politicians can't resist uh, singling them out and lambasting them, uh, the damage they do to, uh, to people who want to pursue their ideas, pursue their curiosity, the effect of that downstream is actually demonstrably really high for the economy. And I think there are so many examples of where Australia has excelled from a research perspective. But the point of research is to test hypotheses. It's, mm -hmm. It is to fail and to find those nuggets that you then uncover. Maybe the, the challenge is how you then commercialise and retain that IP in a way that makes sense for the Australian economy. Yes, and we've had a limited uh, commercialisation success here. You know, mm -hmm. Things like Gardasil and so on and you know, Wi-Fi out of Syro yep. are wonderful examples of, of what we've achieved. Uh, but it's not only commercialisation. You can take social sciences, things like the development of um, uh, HEX in Australia or Medibank or uh, uh, child support systems are all ways in which the taxpayer has been saved a fortune uh, by developments of ideas out of social science academics that you can't patent. So you can't run them through a commercialisation department and yet they spill over you know, really handsomely to uh, our social fabric. That's an excellent insight. I really hadn't thought about that. Um, Glenn, in your session today, uh, you were reflecting on the existential challenges of internationalisation, massification and digitalisation. Um, can you elaborate on those challenges a little bit and 
What, what are the challenges, particularly that stem from digitisation? Yes. Oh, sorry, digitalisation. Digitalisation or digitisation. Mm. Um, it, well, it, it's a threat and an opportunity. Uh, the, the threat is the traditional way of uh, personal delivery of education to uh, students. Uh, and uh, what that, that does is take that online and that's not the question of uh, keeping people's jobs only, although that's important too, particularly where those people are also researchers as well as teachers. Uh, but it, but it's, uh, it, it's also the interaction and osmotic knowledge that comes from interpersonal uh, synergy. So that when people are together in one location interacting with each other, then they actually demonstrably learn a heck of a lot more than sitting isolated at a computer. So that's one of the challenges of digitalisation. But at the same time, there's a whole lot of people who can't get to a campus, can't sit in those classrooms, for whom digitalisation is a wonderful way of access to knowledge that they otherwise wouldn't have. And uh, at the moment, there's a bit of a dichotomy. But for instance, what we're calling blended learning is a way of, of combining the best of both of those approaches often in a way that you can, you can pick as the, as the student what combinations suit your needs. So if you're you know, in a country town, you're working really hard, and yet you still want to do some of this learning, then you can pick a particular blend that may well favour the distance element. Mm. If you're in a city, uh, then you may still, with good access, you may want to pursue the, the uh, interactive element with uh, you know, live participation. But things like having intensives as a way of combining that for both groups, so that if instead of attending for four hours a week, you put on a, a weekend seminar two days, then the country folk can attend, the city folk can attend, and they can interact with each other. So what we're learning with blended learning is, is a new, new ways of delivery rather than just the old ways that enhance the benefits and enable more, more people to participate. So that's using digitalisation productively to deal with a challenge to the university system mm. and making it a, a better system. I would think that the digitalisation component is, a, is especially important for the business models of universities such as UNE. I think about 45 or 60, no, maybe 60% of students are taking significant components of their programs online. Mm. Um, when you come back to that economic benefit to the community there and having um, uh, capstone sessions or uh, accelerated on-campus sessions as well. Yeah. Universities have to think about so many different components as they, as they think about how they move online. Mm -hmm. um, are universities really ready uh, to enter a free market for profit environment given that they traditionally have uh, a public, publicly funded kind of framework? Yeah, um, a good, good question. Um, Let's cap off the digitalisation, which is one way to do this. Can you make it commercial? Can you make it open? And so far, universities have stuck with the tradition of essentially open courses. Uh, and for Australia, that's a wonderful way too of dealing with the internationalisation issues. Um, you know, so far, we've had a, a process of students coming here, providing us with revenue uh, from payment for fees. Uh, but they're often uh, rich, middle-class mm -hmm. kids to be able to afford the, the living costs and the fees. Uh, if we also offer open uh, distance learning, and Australia's been very good at this in the past. We were one of the distance learning leaders, I guess, with our Outback tradition of you know, yes. Outback Radio and so on. Uh, we, can, we can fulfil a couple of missions. We can still fund the university system well through those who wish to pay, 
uh, and then we can also um, improve access, uh, overcome the, the, the divides for who can access that education. And then we can, we can take that uh, further to broaden the purpose, the public purpose of the university. But can you do it for profit? Well, when universities are charging 50000 a year for an international course, uh, and yet they're public institutions, some might say they were already profiteering when that's <laughs> cross-subsidising the domestic students and the research endeavours. Yes. Uh, and um, some universities, uh, names like Harvard and Stanford, happen to be private universities and yet are well regarded. They're not seen as uh, Johnny-come-lately, fly-by-night uh, uh, shonks. Mm. Uh, but the big difference in your question was the for-profit university. And there has yet to be a top 100, top 500 for-profit university. They were getting close. Mm. Uh, there's some Indian universities, for instance, that are moving into this domain and are in the top groups of India uh, educators and, and doing well in their rankings. Uh, and, and universities like Laureate, for instance, uh, establishing pretty reputable uh, track records. Mm. But I worry about pushing that too far. When you want for-profit delivery of education, I think that's manageable, particularly where there's appropriate uh, quality assurance regulatory mechanisms. The tough one is research. The whole point of universities that are different from colleges uh, is that they do independent, balanced, transparent, systematic, refereed research. And once private money starts coming in to support a private university into its research function, you can't trust that research anymore. We know it. We know it. Mm. Harvard's, take the Harvard example, the world's best university. Uh, during the GFC, uh, a lot of its economists were found to have pulled their punches because they had private consulting contracts approved by the university with Wall Street banks. And so they didn't warn what they knew was coming. Mm. Similarly, uh, Harvard uh, Medical School uh, got itself into huge trouble because of the funding of so much of its medical and pharmaceutical research by big companies. So Harvard itself admitted that this had uh, brought a shadow across the legitimacy of the world's best universities' research, and it revamped all its codes for outside linkage, transparency in funding, balance in funding, uh, um, proper refereeing and approval processes so that the, the for-profit motive as we saw in vet fee help in Australia can when not properly uh, yes. regulated and you've got to not just say oh regulate you've got to have a good efficient regulatory system that works well and our vet regulatory system was not fit for purpose and is being revamped and reviewed now, mm. then if you do that, maybe the for-profits will do better. But I worry in the research area as to whether it can ever be possible because research can't be regulated in the same way as uh, delivery of existing knowledge. So okay. for-profit, yes, in yes. vocational education, properly regulated. In universities, private universities, not for-profit, and public universities, yes. So if we cycle back to the top of our chat today, we talked about, I guess, that framework by which, regulatory framework, an ethical framework mm. by which universities here in Australia operate. Uh, again, it, it, it puts us in a, in a key position so that we, we can lead the discussion around these kinds of themes rather than follow. Um, 
final question, and I've asked it of everybody today. I'd be interested in your reflections on the question, is the four-year degree dead? <laughs> uh, it's not, it's not, not dead, but I think it's, it's transmogrifying, transforming. That is the, uh, what I call modularization, whereby uh, the nature of the modern world, and indeed the nature of something desirable, which is interdisciplinarity, means that you uh, may want to put together packages that aren't conventional. The traditional degree is so much one of, here is a sequence you must go through and don't diverge from it very much, particularly undergraduate, uh, even electives are limited, postgraduate a bit more open because you've proven you've been able to learn. Uh, but for the undergraduates too, instead of doing two degrees, your law degree and your commerce degree or your medicine degree and your law degree and so on, uh, to be able to produce blended degrees uh, with due attention to sequencing. You, know, you just can't do a module for everything off the shelf without prior preparation. But with some proper sequencing, you should be able to build your own degree. And that can suit the modern work life. For instance, students today in Australia are the hardest working students of any. Uh, by that I mean not only they do their studies, but they actually work more in the marketplace than students part time part time work yeah, yeah. I think it's two point two or something jobs per week the, yeah. the average under, undergraduate holds yeah and that's uh, much more than than yeah. just about any other OECD industrial country mm. so it's a hard juggle for them yeah. and uh, when you when you're wanting out of universities as many employers do and uh, and governments exhort universities to have multi uh, skilled graduates who are work ready. Uh, who have generic skills, who have specialised skills, uh, who uh, have had work experience as well as part of the, uh, the learning, then to put that package together, subject to some rules of coherence and uh, you know, logical advancement as you go through the studies, but at various points stopping and starting, uh, start with a certificate, move on to a diploma, then finally decide to take out the, uh, the bachelor's and maybe make it a master's, yes, keep the benchmarks, but don't just stop with the benchmarks. Mostly at the moment, for instance, uh, universities, employers pay university people only when they finish the bachelor's degree. Yes. Yep. And the bits and pieces up until then don't get much reward in the marketplace. In vocational education, the opposite happens. Uh, you get paid if you've done the skills that they want rather than getting the certificate. Now, sometimes the certificate's required, but quite often it's what's in the module that matters. And so, for instance, governments often complain about attrition rates in vocational education and training. Uh, yes. They drop out a lot more. But in fact, it's often they've got what they needed for the job, their boss is happy, they're happy, and they actually get rewarded for it. And I wonder if we were able to articulate that reward system more effectively at the undergraduate level, how would that affect persistence rates and so forth. I think it would help those uh, rates uh, yeah. stay up. You know, they're, they're not too bad, Australian mm. you know, rates, uh, partly for statistical reasons, don't get measured mm. well. Mm. That is, mm. when you switch between universities, switch between degrees, it looks like attrition and it's not. But there's every reason to try and reduce what does exist. Yeah. Glenn, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking today. Thank uh, you. Had a lovely chat in the foyer. It's just exciting to actually spend some time with someone who has the experience that you're talking about your time uh, in the Keating government through to today. It's just good to be able to sit down and chat with someone with that perspective over time. Thank you. So I really appreciate it. Thank really you. appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah.